The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. So we are going to continue our study on Esther today and specifically looking at Esther and her character and her place in this story. So if you would turn to chapter two, and as you're doing that, I'm going to briefly recap chapter one up until this point of the story. This is what we know. King Xerxes is ruling. Um, He presides in Susa, that's mainly where the story takes place. What we know about King Xerxes, he's a bit of a lush. He likes to party. He's a bit impulsive, emotional, easily persuaded, a little manipulated. And then we also have Queen Vashti. So Queen Vashti, what the Bible tells us, she's beautiful. She's lovely to look at is actually what it specifically says. But here's the thing, King Xerxes hosting one of his parties asks her to come and parade herself in front of him and his friends. And she says, no. I'm not going to do that. Well, obviously, he's embarrassed that his wife isn't going to come into the room. And so he's looking at his friends and his friends like, what are you going to do about this? You can't let this happen. And so there's also some political ramifications from that as well, because if his wife won't come into the room, I mean, there's just all kinds of things that could happen. And so what he and his friends decide is that they're going to set a decree in place that she can no longer enter into the presence of the king and she is disposed. So this leaves King Xerxes without a queen. And here's what's funny. Starting in chapter two, we then see that King Xerxes remembers Vashti. Like, oh yeah, I had a queen. I miss her. I need a new queen. So his friends are like, yes, you do. You need a new queen. So let's put out this edict of let's go find you a new queen queen. And so they send out a word to all the provinces to send in their young, beautiful, young virgins to come in and and for the king to select a new queen. This is legitimately like the first original episode of The Bachelor, right? Like he is getting to have his pick of who his new queen is going to be. And among those women is Esther, And this is what we know about Esther. Esther's Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle, which is a beautiful flowering, fragrant tree. I mean, if you could think about Esther of what you know about her, if Esther were a tree, she would be a myrtle. And Esther's a Persian name, and that means star. We also know that she was a captive. She was born in captivity. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai. So she was orphaned. We don't know how, but her parents died. And Mordecai said, I will raise you as my own. So a part of the harem that Esther was in, kind of what we know about that, harem is essentially just a, a building. It's a place where the servants, the concubines, the wives stay. It's a separate place. And so the women went to the harem and, the, and Haggai was actually in charge of the harem and Esther finds great favor from Haggai. He sees her and he just thinks that she's the most beautiful woman. But there's so much to be said about Esther and her character within that because it, even the text says that she found favor among everyone who saw her. And so Haggai seeing Esther begins to give her a little bit of special treatment. You know, he gives her some special food. He actually gets attendance from the palace and brings them to attend specifically to Esther. And he is, he also gives her a great place in the harem, this like choice 
place part of that building. And so I think it really speaks to Esther's character to know that she was favored among everyone who saw her. Because let's be honest, ladies, we probably don't exactly lift each other up as well as we could. I mean, whenever we see a beautiful woman, and even the men in the room could probably agree to this somewhat, I mean, we're not exactly going to be huge fans of each other, if I could say that. Should we? Absolutely. But let me just say, for her to have that favor, even among the women, says so much about her and her character and her heart, her demeanor, her humility, for her to have that kind of favor. And so a part of this process for the king to choose his wife, the women had to go through beauty treatments. It's really just this purification process. Even Esther had to go through that as well. And so what would happen is after they've gone through this process, the king would then summon them. They would then go to the palace at night. If you are a bachelor watcher, this is probably like the hot tub scene, right? Like, I'll just be really honest. I'm not a fan of The Bachelor and I may slightly judge you for watching it. Maybe just a little kind of. Anyways, so we have these women who would go visit the, the king at night and they would return the next day. Who knows what was happening there? They would turn the next day to a different part of the harem, but they could not return to the presence of the king unless they were summoned specifically by name. And so we're gonna pick up right here in the story, chapter two, verses 17. And it says, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she, was, she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. Man, just to think that Esther not only got a banquet, but she got a holiday. I mean, the king thought so highly of her that he was going to celebrate her. I mean, that's just the favor that she had in his sight, but also just, I mean, he, he could we even possibly say loved her that much? But here's the thing. Esther is not completely out of the woods. Even though she has this great favor already with the king, knowing about her predecessor and the way that Vashti, the relationship that she had with the king, she's not out of the woods. Even though she has authority and she has freedom and she has influence, she has to be careful in how she approaches and relates to the king. So while this is kind of happening, Queen Esther is there in the palace. We have her cousin Mordecai, who just so happens to hear about a plot to kill the king. He then goes and tells Esther, hey, listen, I think something's about to go down. You need to make sure the king knows. And so that's what she does. She goes and tells the king, listen, I, someone's gonna be plotting to kill you. We need to check this out. They get it checked out. Turns out to be true. And the king has it written down in his book because what else would you do? I mean, you, you write everything down in the journal, tell about your life, right? Okay, so right after this happens, Haman comes on the scene. Haman is named the second in command. He's a pretty egocentric, haughty, proud kind of person. And so every time he is, because he thinks so much of himself, every time he walks by, he's expecting everyone to bow down to him. Well, Mordecai, He's not going to do that. 
and he refuses to bow down to him. So that makes Haman just unleash this anger within him towards Mordecai. And it wasn't enough to get rid of Mordecai. He then plotted to annihilate all of the Jews. Well, he kind of needed permission to be able to do that. And so he goes to the king, to, and who is easily persuaded and says, listen, I want, I want to do this. I'm super angry. And the king says, do whatever you need to do. And so this then sets a plan in motion for a specific day and time that the Jews are going to be annihilated. Of course, they get the word of this and Mordecai along with the rest of Susa is in great distress. They're mourning, they're in grief and Esther hears about this and she tries to comfort Mordecai by sending him a change of clothes to say, listen, it's gonna be all right. And Mordecai begs her, listen, you have a place in this as well. And I need you to do something. You have the ear to the king. And she's like, listen, I can't, do you not remember? Do you not know what the law is? I can't go into the presence of the king without being summoned. There is death involved if that happens. And so we're gonna pick up, if you turn the page over to chapter four, starting in verse 12, this is what it says. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, Gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. No big deal. So let's pause just for a moment and let's kind of break this down a little bit. This is what we learn from Esther's new position. Esther is positioned to make a difference. She's positioned to make a difference. She's positioned on the throne before disaster hits. And then lastly, she is positioned in a posture of surrender. So how exactly does this translate to us? How can we apply what is happening to Esther there and then to us here and now? Well, let me, if you don't hear anything else this morning, let me tell you this, where you are positioned, there is purpose. There is a purpose behind where you are. And when I talk about position, I wanna be very specific. I'm talking about even in your family, whether you are the mother or the father, the son or the daughter or the aunt or the uncle, even where you were born. I mean, if you were the firstborn or the thirdborn, there is purpose in your position. Workplace, that's an easy one to think about. Whether you are the CEO or the janitor or you're somewhere in between, there's purpose in your position. And even in your community, right here at Summit Church, or we're talking about in your school, if it's MACU or at high school, wherever it is, your friendships, your relationships, and even your, your actual physical location. God has you there for a purpose. 
So you may think that where you are is really kind of about you. I mean, I'll be really honest. Like I grew up a only child. So I do definitely have selfish tendencies and probably think about myself more than I ought to, if I'm just really honest. But it's not about you. It's about God's purposes. You know, think about it this way. Let's say that you have been praying or maybe you've experienced this before, but you've been praying specifically for God to provide this specific job or you're wanting to sell your house because you're wanting to make a move um, to a different location in the city or wherever, but you are specifically praying for God to do something. And then the answer comes in one way or another. What is then your response? Are you responding with praise and gratitude? Because I think that we probably all do like, yes, thank you, God, for answering our prayer. Maybe it didn't look like what you wanted it to, but he answered it nonetheless. And there you are. You find yourself in a new job or in a new location, in a new place. You praise God. And then what? Do you respond by then serving him in that place? Or do you go about your business? Because if I'm honest, probably more often than not, I kind of go about my business like, oh yes, praise God, he answered that prayer. You know, I have a new job or I'm in a new place, whatever, whatever the circumstances is, like, yes, thank you, God, I acknowledge that. And then I keep doing what I wanna keep doing, right? Okay, so let me ask you this. You've heard the phrase, it's just your world and I'm living in it, right? I think we probably have all heard that before. So let me ask it this way. Is it your world and God's living in it? Or is it God's world and you're living in it? Because we can so easily make everything about us. I mean, we are human beings. We are sinful by nature like and selfish. I mean, it, it's just, it's just a, unfortunately just a part of who we are. It's just a tendency that we can have. You know, Actually, most recently, I had stepped away from a ministry position. God was doing something in our life in in between leaving that position and then coming here. And there was just a lot of ambiguity. Like we didn't know what God was doing. We didn't know what he was up to. We were just waiting for him to give us direction on where to go and what to do. And I found myself, long story short, working at a Mother's Day out. Okay, let me just tell you for a moment. That seemed like the most random job in my entire life. And I worked at a laundromat at one point. Like, I mean, let's just be honest. Like, but in that season, it felt so random to me. And I just thought, God, that is not, like, this isn't really where you're calling me, right? I mean, I, I thought that you had a specific plan and it was gonna be doing this over here. And, but yet I'm, I'm here right now and I'm not quite sure what you're wanting me to do, but yet here I am. And then one day the Lord just spoke to me. and was like, Tia, you're not here for you. You are here for the director. And I was holding an assistant director position at the time. And I probably should note that I had one point in my life said, I could never work in childcare. My mistake, because never say never, right? So there I was holding this assistant director position, which I felt completely unqualified for. And I was, you know, I was just doing the best that I could in that season. And the Lord just, when he said that, he just made it so clear that I wasn't in that season for me. I was in that season, in that place, positioned there to serve those around me. And so every day when I went to work, I made it my mission to encourage and to empower, to speak life and truth and to do what I knew how to do, which was serve. Like I just wanted those women to know um, that they were loved and taken care of and that they felt 
empowered by the end of the day. And so let me just tell you, it was a very short season, but the Lord affirmed that purpose in that position because when I, when I, Closed my time there. The director pulled me aside and she was like, Tia, I don't think that I could have done this, this, and this without you. You were such a good friend to me. And I'm not saying that to applaud me in any way, but I'm just bringing to the, to the fact that not every season is about us. Not every position is about us. We're often positioned to serve others and to put others before ourselves. You know, we also... Just as Esther was positioned on the throne before the disaster hits, perhaps you are positioned, whether it be in your family or your community or your workplace, to intercede, to be an advocate, to be a voice to the voiceless, that maybe God has not revealed his plan for you, but there is a purpose for you in that position. You know, we see Esther, her response to Mordecai when she finally acknowledges that her position does have purpose. Her response is to go and pray and fast. And so she postured herself in a place of surrender. And I think most often, anytime we're in any kind of position where we may be up against a struggle or an obstacle with a person or a circumstance, we have to position ourselves in a posture of surrender. You know, we see time and time again that Esther found so much favor before all of this happened. But let's be honest, the favor of men will fade. But we find the favor of God in the will of God. And so Esther approaches God's throne by saying, listen, you've got to move on my behalf, but I need to know what you want me to do. You have me here in this place for a reason. Mordecai had pointed that out to me. So what is it that you want me to do? And we have to begin to ask that same question to our God. I'm in this position. I'm, I'm a mother to these children. I'm a father to these children. I am the boss of these people. What do you want me to do? Moses prays to God in Exodus 33. If I have favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know and find favor in your sight. Show me your ways. I pray that becomes our prayer. Show me God what you want me to do in this place and in this position and in this season. I want to, and I hope I don't step on too many toes here, but let's be honest. There's some of us that have been praying that prayer for a while and God has shown you what you need to do. He has shown you his way and yet you're still waiting on God to do something, but yet God is waiting on you to make that first move. And so I just wanna encourage you this morning that if that's kind of where you're at, that be bold and take a step of faith. So let's continue with Esther's story, picking up in chapter five, verse one. She's been fasting this whole time. So on the third day, no hesitancies, she jumps right in. Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. 
Esther is so smart. She knew the way to the king's heart through a banquet. She knew that the king would appreciate a party, right? But she knew how to approach him, how to soften his heart. And she also invited his best friend, Haman. And so what more than a celebration would be able for her to be able to approach the king in an appropriate way. But we kind of see something interesting here. There happens to be two banquets that occur. One reason could be that maybe she got a little hesitant about actually following through with what the plan was and needed a little bit more time. But really what I think it happened was I got pressed upon her just to wait because here's what happens between both banquets. Okay, Morde- or, uh, King Xerxes could not sleep. So he, of course, what does he do? He goes back to his journal and he looks at all the things that have been happening in his kingdom and he comes upon Mordecai's story and about how Mordecai thwarted the plans of someone trying to kill him. And he realizes, oh my gosh, have we celebrated this man? Have we honored him? And his friend's like, I don't, I don't think so, no. And he's like, we gotta take care of that. And so long story short, Haman actually gets to play a part in this and planning the celebration of Mordecai and Haman gets even more upset about this and plan and he even more wants to kill Mordecai. And, but Haman ends up just kind of getting set up a little bit. And side note, how Hollywood has not made a movie about this, I have no idea because this is a fantastic storyline, although they would probably ruin it if we're honest. But anyways, nevertheless, we see that Esther used her wisdom to know how to approach the king. And we see that she waited until the appropriate time to do so. She built up that relational equity. She needed to earn her right to be heard. And she also revealed about herself, the fact that she was of Jewish descent and that if Haman were to follow through with his plot, that she too would be killed. So she waited at the right time. She invested in that relational equity with the king to be able to approach him and for, her, for him to be able to hear her. But lastly, above all else, regardless of whatever was about to happen, Esther was willing to sacrifice her security. And I think that says so much about her, her bravery and her courage, but just her, the love for her people and for Mordecai to know that, listen, if I die trying, then I die trying, but I'm going to do what I can and I'm gonna sacrifice all that I have for my people. Well, it paid off, right? I mean, if you've been following along with the story, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, then you know that Haman actually is the one that gets impaled. Esther actually inherits all of the riches and Mordecai gets elevated to second in command. So the story ends quite well, but there's one thing that I hope that you have noticed throughout this whole entire story, this single thread that has been woven throughout is that God is sovereign that he sees and that he knows what is happening. He puts plans in motion because there is a purpose in your position, but that requires trusting in God, right? Knowing God's sovereignty, that requires our trust of knowing that he is omniscient, that he is almighty, that he is all powerful, that he is capable of doing everything and anything and everything in between, right? But it requires our trust in him. 
And in that, it also requires a willingness to obey because if we trust him, then we know that he is working out all the good things on our behalf, right? And so when we trust in him, we are willing to obey him. When he says, go, we go. We don't wait. When we ask for him to show us his plans, he shows us his plans and then we go when he says, go. But it also requires sacrificing ourselves, our reputations, our fears, our own egos for the sake of his kingdom. Because just like Esther, we can look at her picture and and see it as a very dramatic story that she's putting her life on the line for her people that that could be killed. We can see that as a very dramatic story, but let's be really honest. There are lives on the line here today that eternities are at at stake right here and right now. And we have that responsibility as believers in Jesus to be able to share the gospel. I mean, we, we have to stand before the Lord at the end of our life and, and be able to stand proud knowing that we did all that we could to reach these people. So we have to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of his kingdom, knowing that people's eternities are at stake. You know, as we close today, I just wanna ask you a couple of questions for you just to begin to reflect, for you to think about, for you to process. Are you willing to trust God's purpose for your life? Are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to accept the position that God has placed you in? And lastly, are you willing to be utilized by God in that position? Because there is purpose for you there. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to stand in your presence. Father God, I pray as this word just begins to seep into our hearts and our minds that you would just breathe a breath of life into us. I pray, Lord, that you would show us how you want to use us, how we can influence the people around us for your sake, for your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that you would equip us, that you would give us strength and courage to be able to speak the truth that we need to speak, that we would be able to empower people, but ultimately that we would be directing people back to you. But I pray, God, right now for those that feel lost, they are confused about where they're at and what they're supposed to be doing, that you would just breathe a breath of revelation over them in the name of Jesus. Father, I pray that we just don't walk away from here, you know, hearing your word, but that we are actually doers of the word and that we begin to live out the things that you are calling us to do. God, speak to us. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.